Amen. What a great reminder. What a great reminder. Let's study God's word together tonight. Second Samuel chapter number 10. Our text tonight is a sequel to the text before it, which we preached last week. In chapter 9, David shows the kindness of God to a man by the name of Mephibosheth. In chapter 10 tonight, David shows the kindness of God to a man named Hanan, the king of Ammon. But though the same kindness was extended in both chapters, the way the king's kindness was received was different. Mephibosheth in chapter 9 received the king's kindness with humility and gratitude. But Hanan rejected the king's kindness and was even hostile toward the king. Here's the truth. There are two possible realities in our lives tonight. We are either receiving the king's kindness like Mephibosheth did by inviting his kingship into our lives. Or we're rejecting the king's kindness like Hanan did by ignoring his kingship in our lives. Our text tonight will serve as a cautionary tale to warn us of the consequences involved when we reject the kindness of God in our own lives. We're going to move through the story by using three headings. Then we're going to make some application at the end of the sermon. Here's the first Heading, the king's kindness was extended. Look at verses 1 and 2. And it came to pass after this that the king of the children of Ammon died and Hanan, or Hanan, however you want to pronounce it, his son reigned in his stead. Then said David, I will show kindness unto Hanan the son of Nahash as his father showed kindness unto me. And David sent to comfort him by the hand of his servants, For his father and David's servants came into the land of the children of Ammon. Now there's an element of surprise, just like there was in chapter number 9. There's an element of surprise in chapter 10 in regards to who David is showing kindness to. He's showing kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash. Who's Nahash? Well, he's the previous king of the Ammonites, who in 1 Samuel chapter 11, when he's trying to negotiate with King Saul, threatened to gouge the eyeballs out of the men of Jabesh-Gilead. He was a bad dude. It's not like David wakes up one morning in chapter 10 and says, I'm looking for the nicest guy in the Middle East to whom I can show the kindness of God today. I think I'll pick Nahash. Nahash wouldn't qualify as a nice guy. This is what makes David's kindness, once again, surprising. See, David could have seized the opportunity to subdue and defeat the Ammonites. They were God's enemy. And they were vulnerable. They were right in the middle of a kingly transition. But instead, he surprises us by showing kindness, once again, to the enemy. Why? Verse 2 says that he showed kindness to Hanan for the sake of his father Nahash. This is why he showed kindness to Mephibosheth, do you remember? For the sake of his father, Jonathan. And it's why God shows kindness to us even when we were his enemy. For the sake of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died and gave himself for us. 
Apparently the text shows us that Nahash had done something kind to David along the way. We don't know what that was. But David felt like he wanted to repay him for it. So David sent a delegation to the king's son to express his sympathy. Hanan was the successor. David sincerely, the text tells us, he sincerely desired to comfort the new king during this time of loss and transition in his life. Now you would think this type of kindness would go a long ways. I mean, doesn't it mean a lot to you when someone sends their thoughts and prayers your way when you're suffering a loss? Sure it does. Yet the response to David's kindness is just as surprising as David's kindness was in the first place. This is where we get to the second movement. The king's kindness was rejected. Verse 3 and 4. And the princes of the children of Ammon said unto Hanan their lord, Thinkest thou that David doth honor thy father, that he hath sent comforters unto thee? Hath not David rather sent his servants unto thee to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? Wherefore Hanan took David's servants and shaved off the one half of their beards. Cut off their garments in the middle, even to their buttocks, and sent them away. Now, normally, I tell the church, I want you to picture this in your mind. (laughs) I want you to put yourself in the biblical script. But I don't want you to do that tonight. But you already are. This is such an interesting response from Hanan. Instead of receiving the king's kindness, you know what he received? He received the advice of his men that told him that David was setting him up, that David was feigning uh, kindness as a means to get into their territory and spy out the land. And and as a result of listening to that advice, Hanan took David's men and abused them. He shaved half their beards off and cut half of their robes off. Now, what is that about? Well, a beard and the buttocks area is, is what represented these men's masculinity and dignity. This would have been the most degrading and humiliating thing that this king could have done so as to send David the clear message that he is not interested in receiving his kindness. What's interesting is that Hanan knew this wouldn't sit well with King David. Look at verse 6. And when the children of Ammon saw that they stank before David, the children of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians, Abethrahab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 footmen and the king Machus, a thousand men, and of Ishtab, 12,000 men. So the text tells us Hanan knew that what he did would cause a stink. And it did. He knew that what he did would cause David to retaliate. So you know what he did? He spent massive amounts of money to hire thousands of soldiers. Can I make this side point? Hanan has done all of this purely based on suspicion. He didn't know for sure what David's motives were. He just took for granted the worst based on secondhand information. Then made drastic responses based on... On false assumptions. This will preach right here. Can I encourage you tonight? Do not act or react to somebody or a situation based on suspicion or assumption or primarily on secondhand information. 
The book of Proverbs warns against speaking out before we have all the details. It's foolish. We shouldn't assume or assign motives to anybody. Let me encourage you. Don't assume the worst of somebody in your church. Don't assume the worst of your child's teachers. Your child doesn't always tell the truth. They exaggerate a lot. Don't assume the worst of your spouse. Don't make decisions or say things based on your sole interpretation of somebody else's actions. Get the details. Talk face to face about your concerns. And then react under the leadership and filling of the Holy Spirit. That would save us some heartache. And when we don't do it, here's what happens. We wage a war that should have never been fought. That's what Hanan did. Should have never... David wasn't picking a fight. David was sincerely being kind. When we act on our false assumptions, on our uncharitable interpretations of something we don't know the details about, we usually invite trouble on ourselves. We should not let our thumbs type or our mouths speak until we have talked face to face with the individual with whom we're concerned. Somebody say amen to that. That would save us. That's not the text. That's a sub point. That's not the main point. But that is worth saying tonight. How would David respond to this terrible act then of Hanan to his men? Well, look at verse five. When they told it unto David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. They were embarrassed. The king said, tarry at Jericho until your beards be grown and then return. I want you to get this. This is another demonstration of the king's kindness. Because a normal king would have been embarrassed and enraged by this to the point where he took it out on his men. He would have said something like, hey, why didn't you stand up for yourselves? You should have died before you let another man humiliate you like this. This is a reflection of my kingdom and you guys are a bunch of half-bearded sissies that have embarrassed your king. David didn't say that. He respected these men. He knew they were already humiliated and he wasn't going to make it worse. So he provided temporary staying arrangements for them in Jericho until their dignity grew back. This is kindness. Can I say this? Another sub point. How you treat somebody when they're already down or after they've made a mistake really matters. And it says a lot about you. Christians shouldn't kick other Christians or non-Christians, for that matter, when they're already bruised. If they've already been cut, we ought to put our razors up. Even if we saw it coming, even if we think they had it coming, or even if it's a reflection on us. When our brothers and sisters are down for whatever reason, even if it's a hole they dug for themselves, we should still treat them with kindness. I'm not talking about enabling sin. I'm not talking about turning a blind eye to irresponsible behavior. I'm talking about supporting hurting people. That's what David did. That's what God does. With that being said, though, we need to realize That just because the king has been generously kind, at some point his kindness, if continually rejected, will come to an end. 
And this is where we get to the third movement of the text. The king's wrath was experienced. Now for the rest of the story. Verse 7. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the children of Ammon came out and put the battle in array at the entering of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and Rahab and Ishtab and Makkah were by themselves in the field. When Joab saw that the front of the battle was against him before and behind, he chose of all the choice men of Israel and put them in array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he delivered into the hand of Abishai, his brother, that he might put them in array against the children of Ammon. And he said, if the Syrians be too strong for me, then thou shalt help me. But if the children of Ammon be too strong for me, then I will come and help thee. Be of good courage. Let us play them in for our people and for the cities of our God. And the Lord do that which seemeth him good. All right, here's what happened. When David heard that this huge army was forming to plan an attack, he went on the defense like a good king would. He sent Joab, captain of his army, out with the Israelite army. And when the Israelite army approached the vicinity of Ammon, they realized they were in a very dangerous situation that they didn't expect. They were trapped between two armies, the Ammonites on one side, the Syrians on the other. So Joab improvised a strategy that would allow the Israelites to fight both simultaneously. He took command of part of the Israelite army. And he took on the Ammonites. While Abishai, his brother, took command of the other half of the Israelite army and took on the Syrians. If at any time one of the armies was getting beat, the other half would come to their aid. That was the plan. It's all they could do to stay alive. And at that point, I love this. Joab, who you might remember as a murderer in 1 Samuel, became a theologian. He stood before all of his men And he encouraged them to do three things. I love this. He said, guys, first of all, be strong. That is, utilize every personal resource at your disposal. Number two, fight bravely for our people. Remember that your efforts on the battlefield will directly impact your family and the rest of Israel. Three, bravely fight for the cities of our God. Fight in defense of the Lord's possessions. In this case, he was speaking about the promised land and its cities. And did you see the phrase he concluded with? He said, the battle belongs to the Lord. He's going to do what is good. I love that last phrase. This is where he turns into a theologian. By the way, really bad people can actually say really true things. If you discount truth because of who it comes from, you're a loser. How do you like that theology? Seriously, really, really bad people can say really, really true things. Just because the person lacks credibility in your eyes, do not turn off what they're saying if what they're saying is true. Another sub point. The Lord will do that which seemeth good. This is speaking to God's sovereignty. He's in control. He knows what's best for us. He'll do what is good. Now, this ought to serve as a comfort to those of us who are surrounded by trouble on every side like Joab was. Am I talking to anybody who has a little trouble in their life tonight? Or a lot? We might not know how it's going to turn out, but we know one thing. All things work together for good. God is on his throne 
He's in control and he will do what seems good to him. I love that. I love that. After this motivating speech, they put Joab's plan to action. God did his part. He protected them. And they ran both the Ammonites and the Syrians off. Yet that's not the end of the story. Because just because they dispersed, they reassembled and planned another attack. And that's when the king saddled up and got to work. I love how, the, I love how it ends. Verse 17. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together. Passed over Jordan. Came to Halam. And the Syrians set themselves in array against David and fought with him. Have they not read his resume? Verse 18. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David slew the men of 700 chariots of the Syrians and 40,000 horsemen and smote Shobach, the captain of their host, who died there. 700 chariots, gone. 40,000 horsemen, dead. The captain of the host, in the grave. He whoops him tail. And I want you to catch this. Not because he was eager to show his wrath. David was eager to show his kindness. That's how the story started. But when his kindness was rejected, his just and righteous character demanded that his wrath be executed on God's enemies. Three movements. The king's kindness was extended. The king's kindness was rejected. And as a result, the king's wrath was experienced. What's in this story for us? I believe the text serves as a warning, like I said at the start, about the dangers involved in rejecting God's kindness in our lives. I'm going to revise a statement from Pastor Josh Merrill, who preached an excellent sermon out of this text. And it sums up the essence of what we're supposed to take home tonight. Here it is. Kindness spurned is wrath earned. Did you write that down? Maybe remember it for this week. Kindness spurned. Is wrath earned? And before we jump into applying this, we need to talk a little bit to understand God's character. God's most natural posture, hear me, his most delightful posture toward us is not one of wrath, it's one of kindness and grace. And mercy. That's why the Apostle Paul calls him in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3, the father of mercies. The devil has a nickname, the father of lies. That's who he is. Well, God's the father of mercies. That's who he is. The psalmist describes God, we sang about this morning, Psalms 1 and 3, as merciful and gracious. And then what does he say? Slow to anger. The phrase slow to anger, you know what it literally means? Long of nostrils. Picture an angry bull pawing the ground, breathing loudly, nostrils flared. That would be, so to speak, short-nosed, short-nostriled. But the Lord is long-nosed. You get what I'm saying? He doesn't have his finger on the trigger. In fact, the gun's nowhere in his reach. It takes much accumulated provoking to draw him to this kind of wrath. Get this. That's why throughout the Old Testament, you'll never read of God having to be provoked to kindness. Never provoked to love. Never provoked to mercy. Oh God, please. please. No. 
This is his natural posture. The Bible speaks of him having to be provoked to anger. Meaning he doesn't get angry very easy. Unlike us. Who are often emotional dams ready to break. God can put up with a lot. Somebody say amen to that. That's important for us to understand as we make application tonight. Because if we're not careful, we'll walk away thinking that God stands ready to mop us up if we get it wrong. That is not the case with God. He has long nostrils. What this text does help us to understand is that the same God who has kindness and mercy and grace as his natural disposition has as a part of his character justice and righteousness. And it's important for us to understand that while he is kind, he does not cease to be just. And while he's just, he does not cease to be kind. Which is why we re- when we reject his offers of kindness in our life and persist in our rejection, his justice will cause him to do what David did, cause him to do what's less natural for him, and that is demonstrate his wrath toward us. Thinking of two types of people tonight that this warning can be directly applied to. The lost and the rebellious. If you're lost tonight, that is you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. You've never come to the place where you've been willing to change your mind about your sin and repent of it. If you're lost, you know what you need to know tonight? God has extended kindness to you. You're not taking for granted that everybody's saved in here tonight, are you? This is an urgent gospel plea tonight. God is in the posture of kindness toward those that are lost in our congregation right now. Romans 6.23 proves that. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, this is kind, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5, 8, but God committed his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, this is kind, Christ died for us. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some encounter slackness, but is long suffering toward us, Lord, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God has extended his kindness and that he provided his son as a payment for your sin. Children, are you listening? He loves you. He sent his son to die for your sin. Everybody in here has had or you do have right now the choice to receive his kindness and salvation or reject his kindness. Listen, should you receive his kindness, you get to be in a relationship with him. You get to experience eternity in heaven with him. Should you reject his kindness and persist in that rejection until you die or he returns, you will face his wrath. I'm not pleased to say that, but it's true. Romans 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Romans chapter 2, verse 3 through 6. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such thing, 
and dost the same, listen here, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and penitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. Revelation 20. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's coming a day when God's justice and righteousness will lead him to bring judgment on all those who rejected him. So I would plead with you tonight, if you have not received his kindness in salvation, do that before it's eternally too late. There's another audience in here tonight that could be the rebellious. That person may very well be a believer, but they're rebellious towards God and his word right now in an area or three in their life. It could be major rebellion where where a believer in here tonight is playing around with, with major sin in their life and they refuse to get rid of it. It could be a believer that has an entitled idol factory set up in their heart where God has been completely dethroned for the idol of work or money or family or pleasure or children or recreation or success or any number of things. If that's you tonight, let me remind you that God, praise his name, is slow to anger with you too. He's extending his kindness to you by simply allowing you to be under the sound of his word one more time. He promises that if you'll come to him in repentance, he'll give you forgiveness. He's in a posture, open handedness toward you. I want to show kindness, rebellious one. I want to show kindness, wayward one. I want to show kindness, prodigal. Just repent. I want to be kind. But just because he's slow to anger doesn't mean he never gets there. Proverbs 29.1 He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. You know what that means? Positively, here's what it means. God is patient and he allows you to be often reproved. But after being warned often and there being no repentance, you can expect, generally speaking, expect to be destroyed. Suddenly, without warning. Now that doesn't mean that God will strike you down all of a sudden with lightning. It generally means that God will allow, listen to this. He'll allow what you're pursuing over him or instead of him to catch up with you. To have its way with you. And to destroy your life. Hear me, if you're flirting around with sin. And you're getting away with it right now. It's because God's kind. But if you keep flirting with that sin, I don't care what it is. If it's outward or internal, doesn't matter. Action or attitude, word or deed. If you keep flirting around with that sin, here's how God's wrath will be displayed in your life. 
He will let sin catch you, put its claws in you and take you down. Suddenly destroyed doesn't always mean that God will cause you to get into a car accident and die. Sometimes that's how he works, I suppose. But most of the time, he lets your idol destroy you. And nobody knows, nobody knows when that will happen. You talk to the attic. You talk to the attic. You talk to the gossip. You talk to the the habitual liar. You talk to the person whose spending is completely out of whack. You talk to the person cheating on their spouse. You talk to the porn addict. You talk to the person who only comes to church when they feel like it. You name the sin. You talk to that person and, 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 and you ask them to tell you, did you have a warning whenever you would hit rock bottom? Did your sin like tell you in your ear, hey, you got two more chances? Before all of a sudden it had its claws in you and you couldn't say no. No, they didn't. And neither did Samson. You remember him? Just kept flirting around with sin. One woman after another. He even joked about it, made a riddle about it. But there came a time, I hope you're listening tonight, where sin put its claws in Samson. And literally, he lost his eyes. And he lost his life. And if you are rebellious tonight, oh, hear me, hear me, I'm burdened. If you're rebellious and messing around with sin, do not think that you'll be an exception to this verse right here. You might last longer than your friend lasted. You might last as long in your sin as your parents did before it caught up with them. You might last 48 hours. But you hear me, if you're a child of God and you spurn his kindness, you will earn his wrath. Sin is fun until it catches up with you. Sin is easy until it's found out. But then the way of a transgressor is hard. Kindness spurned is wrath earned. As I said at the beginning of the message, this passage is a sequel to the chapter before where David showed kindness to Mephibosheth. And what did Mephibosheth do? He received the king's kindness. I want to end on a positive note. Will you let me? While it's true that kindness spurned his wrath earned. Here's the flip side of that coin. Kindness received is rest achieved. Mephibosheth rested his entire life in the king's house. At the king's table. You know why? He accepted the king's invitation. And the same promise is given to those who receive the kindness of God in their life. If you're lost tonight and you say yes to God, you get a spot at the table. Like the table that we're going to sit at on Wednesday night. And all of us be reminded that we don't deserve a spot at this table. We were lame. We were crippled. We were in low to bar. We had nothing going for us. We were an enemy of the king. But he made us a friend. 
He made us a son. He made us a daughter. And now we get to sit at the table. That's what God wants to do. That's the kind of rest and peace he wants to give you if you'll just say yes. To the rebellious. To the rebellious. You think that your sin makes life funner and easier. And maybe it does right now. But if you're truly a child of the king, let's be honest. You know there's not true rest in your soul. Because you can't live in sin and be restful on the inside at the same time if you know the king. But when you give up your rebellious ways, when you, when you slay the idols in your life, when you start fighting sin again, you are promised rest. My dad always says, A clear conscience is a soft pillow. Did you hear me? A clear conscience is a soft pillow. There's nothing like putting your head on a pillow and knowing, yes, you are a rotten sinner. But by the grace of God, you fought sin today. There's nothing like that. And the flip side is true as well. There's nothing as miserable as, as going to bed knowing you are in a wrestling match with God. That's miserable. Can I leave you with a, with a verse and then we'll pray? Come unto me, Matthew 11, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the king. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek. And lowly in heart. This is who he is. He's kind. And you shall find rest unto your souls. Kindness spurned is wrath earned. But kindness received is rest achieved. Would you stand to your feet every head?